first thing we've done after Misery, which is really cool. Very exciting. Um, Very exciting stuff. Oh, okay. I'm so happy to be out of misery. Out of like, misery. Oh man, I'm so happy now. Out of misery. Haha, <laughs> no. Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock. With Kim Payne and Otto Mullins. There's a good sense of accomplishment now. Um, happy Thanksgiving, if you're listening to yeah, this, the day comes out. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving today. Well, and, and I actually said it earlier today when I was talking about the our podcast that we moved from one book that is utterly terrifying because it's real, I mean, it could be real, to another book that's utterly terrifying because it could happen, and it does happen. You find this book all terrifying? The time. I don't think this well, book is that scary. I don't think it's scary, but the scenario is really. The scenario is like, well, I mean, I will say like there's a, there's a certain amount of like repercussions for your actions. Like, I feel like if you put yourself in enough of a situation where like you are like we'll talk about Andy and you're in a situation where you have enough reasonable doubt against you, like there's got to be some actions that have come out or come that will be coming out. So one thing that's really different about this time that we've, we're going to try and implement into the future podcasts is I haven't finished the novel this time. So I'm only about halfway through it. Um, and well, the front page fell off the other day. I was like, no, um, I'm only about halfway through it. And uh, it's going to, I think it'll add a lot more, Interest, intrigue for me, just yeah. to hear like uh, me wildly hypothesizing. Yeah, I I agree. I think it will. But anyways, this book, this novella, is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. It's part of a four novella collection called Different Seasons. Um, originally, when Kim pitched it, that this be like one of the things we do as like small like one-off episodes i had no idea that like there were so many different novellas by stephen king until i like went and looked for them and like started looking at these things but i think it's really cool they're based on seasons Mm -hmm. um it's really interesting uh the one for rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption is for spring and it's hope springs eternal i think it's springs and then like having seen the movie as i'm sure Everyone that has listened to this will have seen the movie right, because Spring in from a, Prison. Like that's a right. fun little yeah. It is the tale, not he who tells it. All right, ACDC has a little. They get a little uh, quote in the paperback here. I don't know. Did they happen in yours too? No. Yeah, I got a ACDC quote and says, "Dirty deeds done dirt cheap." <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> Hope Springs Eternal. It's got a like nice little like flower. It's cute. It's actually really pretty. I like that flower uh, a lot. So I think one thing that's like interesting about the novellas immediately is there's no chapter breaks and stuff. So yeah. for me, it was immediately better because it's just now it's just a it it almost it reads like a buddy telling me a story. It does. I love it so much. Like really I feel does. like Red would just hang out and be like, "Man, let me tell you about this guy I was hanging out with in prison, right?" And it's adorable. You can. Uh, he, it seems like he almost has a little bit of a crush on Andy. Yeah, I absolutely like, feel like that. That is a thing. I don't know if it's crush. It might be just like a, a sense of reverence. 
but it's really like it's really well written in that regard. I like the like tone of buddy buddiness that you give to it. Yeah, and there's also the the admiration that comes through. You can tell that he has a respect and admiration for especially because the story's told in the past tense. Mm-hmm. So we're getting this from post prison life maybe and we get to really hear like how important he was in those moments too yes um yeah so it starts off uh tells us very little about himself like whoever the character was uh but he gets a little bit into it and he's like but the story isn't that much about me it's about andy um, and it's funny because he just gives himself what, a page and a half of like, ah, this is what I'm here for. It's not right. that important. It's really. not that important. I want to tell you about my friend Andy. And then we get into Andy, mm-hmm. and Andy seems very underwhelming at first. You know, I think that's kind of the point is to like show him change. The story is just told so differently, and. That immediately makes me think, why is it told so differently? Why is it significant that it's told in this point of view? And I think it's because as the parts that I've read up to the... I've read up to page 50, um, and in our versions, it's about a 100-page novella. And later on, we see Andy becomes a tall tale. Mm-hmm. He becomes a, an oral myth. He becomes right. something he has, that you hear about in the legend. prison yard, a legend. <laughs> he, he's a legend. And I think that's why it's written in this way. It has to be written in this way. It has to be written in a way that's like, here's this guy who's just like you. He got unfairly put in jail, but he was smarter and cleverer than all the guards, and he was able to make them look like dummies, and he escaped with just nothing but a poster and uh, the rock axe. That's yeah, like, and yeah. I know that those are accurate things. Spoiler alerts. Yeah, <laughs> you got to say those first. You got to have the movie. But I mean. I, that's the thing. I, it's hard to read this without thinking about the movie. It's hard to read this without hearing Morgan Freeman's voice. It, yes, it is. It and, is. And I mean, I've read this. I read this before the movie was a thing, and I still can't read it now without hearing Morgan Freeman's voice and seeing Tim Robbins' face, and um, so that's a that's a thing. I think Steve really goes out of his way to make it just make it seem like Andy is not guilty at all. Like right. he, I really think that it, like, and I mean that might be just Red's bias point of view at this point, recounting the story. But he talks about the pawn shop and all this stuff, and he's like, "But that's just coincidence. That couldn't have like blah." And I think it's really like interesting how I wonder how much of that is true. Like, I really am curious because, like, this is a secondhand account of what someone else did, Mm -hmm. and they were in prison for whatever they did. I don't know. How honest and accurate is that? Right. Like, what was his reputation at the point? What was he trying to, like, keep as a reputation? Yeah. Um, Why do you like this one so much? Like, what is, like, is this, like, your favorite of these four novels? Novellas? Actually, no. Of these four, I think the summer one is my favorite. Um, but we'll get to that. When, I mean, which one's the summer one called? It's called again? Apt Pupil. Apt Pupil. Well, yeah. I've heard some really messed up things about the winter one too. Yeah, the winter one is really. So I'm excited to read that. Crazy. I like messed up things. It'll yeah. Be good. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I think this one. It, it just. I don't know. Probably my my favorite quote that from anything that I can think of comes from this story 
and it's at the very tail end of the story but he says get busy living or get busy dying and mm-hmm. you know i just it's it speaks to me you know you've got to live you've got to live and experience and do the things you've got to you've got to have hope because hope springs eternal oh see and i'm sure like we'll see that as we continue through reading through these novellas like Mm -hmm. those ways that it's like that so in the story uh we're up to we see pretty much from red's point of view what andy has told him about his trial and what the da said and the next the big the closest thing that we get to hearing andy's side of this is when he says uh do you know think you know what happened and he's like i'm pretty sure that this guy came in just bad luck right just bad timing bad timing i was in the wrong place um and then give us a rundown of shawshank and tells us uh some of the people on the parole board and it tells us about Andy Dufresne's history through prison and I think really all it's doing is setting us up for like he's in here for a long time yeah he's in here for life to life yeah so Maine at the time that this is set in 48 49 uh, Maine did not have death penalty so Andy was sentenced to two life terms back to back so he's there potentially forever i mean there's the parole board and so that's a thing that could happen but but he's there basically forever um real quick when was this written when like Um, do we have anything like do you have any like january the the dear constant reader letter at the end of this book is dated January 4th of 82. Oh, okay. So this one is an earlier work. Oh, and, this is an afterward. And this is a, you know, being a short story, there's a chance that he actually wrote this prior. And I forgot my notebook, so I don't have that. Yeah. Okay, so 1982. Yeah. Um,. That makes sense. I think the copyright in the front says 82 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, first printing, August 1983. So, yeah, copyright 1982, printed yeah. in 83. Um, so, yeah, so this is, you know, Carrie was in 74. So this is less than 10 years in. He's got a lot of shorter stories that, aren't sufficient to be as an individual book so you'll find and and as we go through this there are a lot of compilations collections of short stories yeah so i mean that makes sense like some stories don't need you know don't need the 1200 pages book you just brought right right some some books don't need that and i feel like that this story um in particular is so complete i mean it and it's like we talked about at the end of misery you know you are you have a fondness for the characters and you want to know where they are next and and that's something that i just have always found to be an amazing talent yeah that he has is mm-hmm. he just makes you feel connected you know so you feel yeah like you feel i mean terrible. that's the first thing that i've said about 
Ruda Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is, you know, I connected, oof, excuse me, I connected with Red in a way that I thought was like, wow, this guy could be like my buddy, my friend. Right. Um, and I think that's I really great. I could have a beer with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really cool because it's, it's honestly, it's like friendship with Andy is just a little adorable. Like they can, you just like, you're really like, wow, like they're just really happy that they like at least have each other in prison to be friends with. Um, and like to the point where you can tell how important it is to Red, he remembers almost every detail of his meeting with Andy. Like to like every like every, word yes. Andy said, why he wanted things, how they acted and what he was wearing. And You know, I, I imagine that being in prison is probably not a, a easy place to make that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. To make a lasting... I can't imagine you're making strong emotional bonds in prison. Uh, yeah. Just it doesn't seem like the right place for it. No. For some reason. And the, the back mm-hmm. of my head is like, no. Yeah, no. I don't know why. You know. Um, Especially not maximum security prison, mm-hmm. which is where mm-hmm. we are. So, like, I think also just, like, put it down a baseline real quick, since we're only about halfway through it. I remember for sure that he escapes through the hole behind the poster, and he uses the hammer. Um, and I remember, like, he crumps through a, a pipe or something. I don't remember how or, like, all the things that he does. Um, I don't remember, like, what else he does in prison after mm-hmm. he gets to the library. Like, I know him getting the library is, like, really important. Like, right. Because he becomes more administratively important or something, and he gets hands on, like, like to do stuff in the prison. Yeah, and, and I think that that goes hand in hand. Um, you know, it's a favor. Okay. And um, again, like, and my only knowledge from this is the movie, so yeah. that's pretty much what we have to compare this against. Yeah. But I think you'll find that um, this is an exceptional book-to-movie adaptation. It's really? not perfect. None of them ever are. But this one is is pretty solid. Awesome. That's really like okay. I'm excited to watch this one then. Um, I'm excited to watch Misery still too. Yes. But um, we have like a really decently chunk of a scene where he's talking about uh, the rocks and how he wants a rock hammer. Right. And he comes up to Red, and it's the first time they've met, and he says, "Hey, I hear you're a guy that can get me things." And he asks him about a rock hammer, and he's like, what's a rock hammer? You know, so, they're in prison. A rock hammer sounds like maybe not a good uh, yeah. idea. Yeah, and Red has this whole spiel right before about his honor of a prison, like uh, contrabandy, like the man who's able to get things. He never gets anything that can hurt someone or right. it would cause, you know, to extend someone's sentence. Yeah, no, no, no hard drugs, no weapons. You know, he's, he's a man of honor. and So he's immediately suspicious of why do you want this hammer in mm-hmm. prison? And he says he likes rocks. And he bends down and he finds a pretty little quartz and he cleans it up and he hands it to him. And he's like, ah, see? Like, there's pretty rocks everywhere. I just need a, a hammer to, like, break them open and clean them. And he... You know, I really think that, like, that's the thing about Andy. is like, this is, this is the moment where we get... Not just the legend of Andy, not just like, this is Andy, like, this is what I've heard about Andy. We actually get Andy. Yeah, absolutely. We get Andy, and he's... Charismatic? He's... And... and Honest? And honest, and... You can tell that he's thinking... Not complicated. Yes. You can tell that he's got a lot going on, though. Like, but he's presenting, like, just, like, very simple and... 
hey, this is just what it is. Like, and I think that the only reason I think that he's not complete, like that is not just the more the reason I think that it's a facade is because uh, I don't know if I do think it's a facade. He is kind of just a simple dude who wants to just get his rocks and. I'm sure, like, he's not lying. Like, he does like rocks. He just also wants to chisel his way out of prison. Well, but, but, first of all, we don't know that yet. And second of all, mm. does he even know that yet? You don't think his plan isn't to immediately start digging out of prison? No. Really? Why not? That would you'll be my. You'll find out in the rest that of was, the book. That's my. That would be my plan. Like, first things. Yeah, but no, first things first. But the thing about it is, is you'll find out. Okay, You'll well, find out. fair enough. We come in, and then uh, the next thing you know is, like, we just get ten pages of talking about how he gets beat up and raped every other day um, because of his small size and fairly good looks. Uh, again, seems like Red has a little bit of a crush on him. A little bit. Um, we send up sitting here uh, hearing about all of the group that they call the Sisters. This group of men that go around... Uh, Pretty much just abusing and raping men that other men in prison, finding them in just dark corners. People. Yeah, and I mean, and he gets to the point where he's literally getting gang raped every other day. It's like, right. and and he is fighting back every single every time, single time, getting and, his couple of punches in and everything. And so it's just starting to get to the point where, oof. I, I think that like Stephen King makes it a point. I guess one thing I had said to you when we were talking about this is how I didn't like how Stephen King wrote about the rape in this because it made it seem kind of like one-off, like it happened and then like he just, like, whatever. But I guess I am also saying, like, realizing now that this is from Red's point of view. So, like, those things didn't happen to him. He doesn't right. understand the severity of how bad that trauma would be. And and maybe he he does but he doesn't he really wants to just i mean you're not gonna sit there and want to recall that right he doesn't want to go into the graphic details he just wants you to know what happened he went through struggles to get an adjust you know and an adjustment period (laughs) an adjustment an adjustment period you know and, and then you'll find out later on that that is something that he used to his advantage i mean he just it's a really horrible thing to happen and i mean i've heard stories and and in other places about this is not an uncommon situation but you know he he turned it around and was he just didn't let it break him i think he almost continues on in spite of it it seems yeah. but i also don't think it's just that i think that he's probably as a businessman and a banker, he's probably been run down and rejected and, like, just had to, like, do monotonous, dumb work that, like, would break someone. And I think that he has that sense of, like, perseverance. He seems like the man that has a lot of perseverance. Right. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting, like, we get on the next play, after we're talking about this, uh, we have this really great moment where Andy says, anything you stick in my mouth, I'll bite it off. Yeah. And he's like, what did you say? I'll stab you in the head. And he's like, well, you know... We get. This is where we see how Andy is manipulative and smart and intimidating all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And he says, "I understood what you said. I don't think you understand me. I'm going to bite whatever you stick into my mouth. 
You can put that razor into my brain, I guess, but you should know that a sudden serious brain injury causes the victim to simultaneously urinate, defecate, and bite down. He looked up at Boggs, smiling that little smile of his. So from Red's point of view, he's already, he's infatuated, enamored. He's like, mm-hmm. do you hear like this guy? He is amazing. He is Batman of prison. Like he's out here dropping one-liners as like another man's trying to like shove his penis in his mouth. Yep. Like that's the kind of man you want in your corner in prison. And we go, they go through this whole vi- like back and forth, and it ends with Boggs didn't put anything in Andy's mouth that night in late February in 1948. <laughs> What a funny way to, like, wrap up that story. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm like, yes, okay, good. Like, that is a plot point we needed, but also what a way to, like, right. tell it, us. Right, it's just, oof. Just, <laughs> I just imagine, like, if Red's sitting there telling you this story and he's like, and that was the night Andy did not end up with a penis in his mouth. <laughs> um, I feel like this episode's going to be PG-13, or we'll have uh, to, like, yeah. edit out some of it and, like, put it on the Patreon. Right, something. Um And so, uh, the strange thing was, Boggs was found in his cell, badly beaten one morning in early June, when he didn't show up to the breakfast nose count. He wouldn't say who had done it, or how they had gotten to him. But being in my business, I know the screw can be bribed to do almost anything except get a gun for an inmate. And so, here's the thing that we find out about Andy. I'm not saying it was Andy Dufresne, but I do know that he brought in $500 when he came in. He put it up, his, you know, uh, smuggled it in the prison. $500 in 1948. So, you know, a- approximately a million dollars in 2020 for a middle class American. Right. And That's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a ton of money. And they're saying for $15, he was able to, like, bribe a guard, hire two dudes. Well, they're saying that. You could, could do it for fifteen dollars. It might. It probably it wasn't. Might not have it been might him. not have been. But whoever it was might have spent about fifteen dollars to rough them up and get them beaten up. Right. And if that's like how far fifteen dollars can go to, like, and we find out that Boggs. That's the end of Boggs. I mean. Yeah. Like, you, we never hear about him from the end of the story. Right. Like maybe like one little one-off. Like that was like what happened with Boggs or like something dumb like that. But. From that moment on, like, Andy's won. He's broken that man. He's done. Right. Um, well, and and it said that, he says, the sisters was something that Andy adjusted himself to, and then in 1950, it stopped almost completely. But I'll get to that. Mm, 1950, something big's going to happen. Yeah. Honestly... Oh, yeah. I don't even think I've gotten to 1950. No, you probably haven't. Oh, yes, I did. 1950 is... Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, you did. Yep. But just barely. So, in the fall of 40... Um, hold on. Yeah, yeah. I want to get my nicotine vape. No, stop. Um. So, yeah, yeah, 1950s. But that we'll get to that in due time. Mm-hmm. I think that... Uh, when I read that for the first time, it really reminded me of you, because there's so often where I'm like, "What do you think of this?" And you're like, "Ah, oh, you'll find out." You'll find like, out. You just keep reading. Just it's keep in there. reading it. It'll be there. <laughs> don't don't you worry. <laughs> it also just really makes me like. I like to think that Red is telling me this story, but mm-hmm. I know he is technically. But I'm really curious who he's telling the story to, 
Right. Like, if it's another inmate, if it's, like, his grandchildren after he gets out. I don't honestly remember if he gets out of prison or not. I think he does. Maybe. I know somebody gets a postcard, but I don't remember who it's from or where it goes. Um, but we'll find but out. We'll find out. <laughs> in due You'll time. find out. It was five months later that Andy asked if he could get him Rita Hayworth. This conversation took place in an auditorium during a movie show. When we find out they start to watch these little movies, and he just wants a poster of Rita Hayworth, a big one. Yeah, so uh, usually the movies are have a morally uplifting message. Um, you know, so they give the prisoners some entertainment, but they make sure it's good and clean and has a, a strong moral story. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you're going to see some of the real classic like Jesus movies to really lift you up out of your day. Which, I mean, I'm not opposed to it, but... I feel like you should give them the options. Like, Oh, but you know, the, it's not like it is now. I mean, we're talking the late 40s here. This is true. a This big, is prison prison. This yeah. is prison prison. It's not like you can just This is slave labor chan- prison. Yeah. yeah. It's not like you can just change the channels. You get what they give you, and it's on a projector, and you hope it doesn't break, and it, because it's like actual film, and mm-hmm. you hope it doesn't break, and if it does, eh, oh well, movie night's over. So, you know, you... I'm sure that these guys are just thankful for what they do get. Yeah. Oh, uh, right before this, too. Right before the poster, though, Andy had asked for him to get um, some uh, rock uh, cloths. Mm -hmm. So they were just some... They had on one side it was smooth, and the other side was rough, like sandpaper, and they're for polishing rocks. Right. So, you know, just another... You know, this is his hobby. He's got his little, you know, he picks up the, the rocks and the... The quartz and the mica, the silica and everything. He says he's obviously not lying, I don't think, about that. I think no. that's truly one of his hobbies. And I think that he's probably trying to pass the time at this point. Yeah, I mean, I that's... It's got to be nice to just at least have something interesting have to something do. something that is a hobby that will at least keep your hands busy, and even if your mind isn't. Um, and so they talked to us about, uh, this is the first little interest that we get about how, like, the prison administration knows about the black market. They know everything that's going on in the prison. They just let it happen because it's easier to just let it happen than to deal with it. Because if to, you, or, And to deal with the backlash of it. That's of, what I was, Of not yeah. letting it happen. Because if you deal with it, it's you're just going to end up making everyone more angry and more pent up and more frustrated and more cooped in. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that that's going to end up with any kind of peaceful resolution. Right. And, you know, really, it's a poster. You know, it's it's a rock hammer and some rock blankets to polish rocks. And, you know, they talk about coin collections and stamp collections and just, you know, the things that the guys do to occupy themselves. Mm-hmm. And we get to him buying uh, Rita Hayworth, and we get the real long explanation about exactly how we get it, just so that way we can... I think it's interesting just because we get to find out a little bit about Red's process. He's like, I contacted this place, I got in about 60 of them, and then I got blah, and brought it up through the mid-laundry and everything. And then I really liked this sentence at the bottom of this section here, and it says... But in the bright morning sunlight, there were dark slashes across her face. When the her is Rita Hayworth, the right. poster of her, at least on the wall, the shadow of the bars on his single slit window. Right. Just Such a, just a reminder that a direct illusion. It doesn't matter how like you're still in jail. 
Right. You're still in prison. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got this poster and that's, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, the the bars are there to or the shadow is there to remind you that even though she looks like she's on the outside, you are on the inside. Yeah. Um, I think it's fun because Red addresses exactly what I was talking about. Um, now I'm going to tell you about what happened in mid-May of 1950 that finally ended the three years of skirmishes with the sisters. You may have noticed that what I've told you already is hearsay, and he directly addresses what we're talking about, how none of this is directly from Andy. It's all secondhand information that we're getting from other right. people. And he's just, that's how it is. Like, you got to accept it. Welcome to prison. Like, you never know if anything's true. You never know exactly where the information's coming from, but you have it now. Right. But, you know, knowing what happens, you know, it's kind of that whole putting it through a filter. You know, you I'm sure he hears all these stories and he knows, you know, these things actually happen because he's been here 20 years already. You know, these things he knows happen. Mm -hmm. So he kind of puts it through the filter and is like, yep, this is probably how that went down. And this is the moment where they actually become friends, Andy yes. and Red. And they were on good speaking terms. Uh, he says that like he was interesting to him and they'd had good conversations. Five weeks after he'd uh, gotten Rita, the poster, hung up, Ernie, uh, the guy that had passed him the poster in the mm -hmm. first place, the laundry man, gives him a little box and says, from Dufresne, Andy. And he opens it and it's a beautiful little piece of quartz that he's polished with the rock blankets that mm -hmm. he has now. Which is just a beautiful little token of affection. It's yeah. really sweet. It's yeah, it's, really it's a sweet. pair of rocks. It's a matched set because he comments about if they weren't so heavy, they'd be really nice cufflinks. Red, from the way he's telling it, years, years later, is still touched. Yeah, and and is it's like he's asking whoever he's telling. He's like, "Can you believe this?" Like, this man spent hours polishing rocks for me in prison. Do you understand how nice that was? Yeah, exactly. That's I was, exactly. And, it, like, you know, yeah. it, it, there's just this, you know, and it's a, a pretty gift. And it's, it, it's just. It's humanity. It, it is. It's, it's a sense. It's, a, it's a, the smallest, yeah. especially from Red's point of view. He's the man that's always getting everyone everything. He's right. constantly like, what do you want? Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. So I can assume he's probably never really wanting for anything himself or he's never really receiving many things himself. Right, because he's the, he's the guy that gets guy the that stuff. Guy that gets it. So the fact that Andy went out of his way to just get him anything. And yeah. And something And to like, give him a gift. And something mm -hmm. so personal. Something that he's put, put a lot of time and effort into. And I think it's really touching too because it comes from a place of a connection between them mm -hmm. there's no other no it comes from a connection between them because of the rock blankets and the rock pit coming from him it's almost like he's gave him the tools to go and be successful and like he's and giving him back the, the, the fruits of, the his fruits labor. of it, like hey thank you for like trusting me with this like this is what i wanted to do this mm -hmm. is what i've been working on right and you get this, uh, and like there's that sentence where he says, uh, in that moment I felt something else, an awe for this man's brute force of persistence. Mm -hmm. And I never knew how persistent Andy Dufresne could be. And then we get to the first real tall tale. Yes. I'm sure it's real. 
Yeah, I have I no mean, doubt in my yeah, mind. Yeah, this is where I feel like, you know, the there's, there's a, and there's a kernel of truth in this. And there's mm-hmm. probably a lot of kernels of truth in this, but it's, it's been made into this big grand story. And I mean, yeah. he even talks, he, he goes on to talk about it a little bit later about how, how many people claim to like, have been there. He's like, there used to be 20 people, but now there's mm-hmm. basically 150 that drank a beer up on that roof. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So... The next thing the red tells us is the story of how in May of 1950, they were going to redo the roof of the entire license plate factory that they worked in. If you don't know, uh, currently to this day, in fact, most license plates are produced in state prison facilities in factories for workers that are paid 23 cents a dollar or an hour. But that's what they were doing. That is what they, they were, were making doing. license plates. plates. They were doing laundry. They, they. And I mean, so, they, they. They work. Yeah, they work constantly. So they're up there and they are doing a special project to resurface that roof. And they're doing, it's almost, you're going to get, it's they the way that Red talks about it is it's like the lottery. It's truly like you get to go do the best job for the week. Right, because it's May in, so it's not, in New England. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be beautiful 60, outside. 60, a little windy, yeah, maybe you're not slightly overcast, to, not direct sunlight every hour. You're not mm. going to have to be in the, the sweatshop that is the, the, the factory. The factory. And during this, they're working on the roof for a couple of days and it involves them putting up this tall 20 foot extension ladder and they have to take buckets of tar and they're standing uh, like probably I'd imagine like four of them on the ladder Mm -hmm. and they just hand it up to each other on the ladder and they talk about the burns that they're getting on their arms and everything but they're all just so happy to be outside that it doesn't seem to matter to them. That is that is unimportant. What it, is important right now is that they get to be outside and they get to work. More than and, often. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they're doing something different. Like I know for me when I'm working, it feels nice to do just something off brand, like just slightly different. Like, right. ah, like going to do just something like, oh, I don't do this every day. This is nice. Right. And I can imagine that that's probably got a really similar sensation for them. I'm sure. And then during this moment, we hear two of the uh, guards. I think it's Hadley and Stamis, right? Hadley had gotten some amazing news. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he was talking to Mert Entwistle. So yeah. it was Hadley. So Hadley ends up finding out that his wife or his... His brother. Brother just came into a big sum of money or died. Died and left him. Left him like 30 grand. And he's like, but it sucks because the government's going to take some of it away in a gift tax. The way the Red says it, he's just like, and then out of nowhere. And he just stops and walks over and he's like, I can help you with that. Like, I can make sure that the government doesn't get anything. What does he say exactly? Because it's good. Sorry, I want to find it. Oh, then he said very softly to Hadley, do you trust your wife? Hadley just stared at him. And like, that's a, it's a weird way to start. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. But I think that that's got to be the way, like, Andy can't come off with just the, like, hey, how are you? Like, let me tell you something. It's got to be, like, stark brute just, like, right into it. Right. It's, it's got to be. It's He's got to get his attention. Immediately. And got get his attention in a way that isn't going to get his butt beat. Well, but, I mean, he almost does, you know. he. Uh, but he has to get his attention in a way that there's more to it. He, he sets him off balance. Yes, he, he sets, sets him, him off balance. Yes, that's he makes what he it, does. He, he, makes it, he makes him question himself, does he trust his wife? Yeah. 
do I? Oh man, like, wait, hold on, don't say that. Wait, do I trust my wife though? I know exactly what you're saying. He pretty much just says, if you trust her, we can do some uh, money magic, move all of the money into her name, and the government really won't be able to take anything. And it takes him a little bit of convincing, but eventually... Yeah, well, and, and he has to convince him, first of all, to not throw him off not the throw roof. Not throw him off the roof, yes, I mean... of course. <laughs> and we hear through, like, uh, this is a moment, too, where Bread breaks through the narrative and just tells us, like, where Red just breaks through the narrative and tells us that it doesn't matter in prison who or what you look like. It's equality in prison. You have an equal chance of getting thrown off a roof no matter what you look like. Yep. Um, which is fun uh, and interesting, like a different way of like looking at like the equity of prison. And I'm sure it's not accurate. But, you know, and, and I think this it goes to the legend of Andy is just the nerve that it would take to not only be eavesdropping on the discussion that the guards are having, but to insert yourself in the conversation and that the guards are having and do. tell them what to do. Ooh. I mean, cojones. Cojones. <laughs> He's definitely has the, the, pers- the brute persistence. And he doesn't give up either in those moments. He doesn't like... Mm-hmm. He really talked... Red really talks about how he looks him in the eyes and he's calm and confident. And he's like, I know that this is the best thing that you can do because I've done this before. Um, I mean, that was his job on the outside. mm -hmm. He was a trust officer for a bank. And and what that person does is helps people with their investments. You know, that's that's that was his job is to help people invest their money and be able to keep the majority of it. That's. That's what he did. And he says, I can help you do that. I'll even do it for uh, relatively... Well, like, and, and then he all, you know, and he also gives Hadley... I'm sure that you would research this. You can I, find it out I, at the IRS yourself. You can find it out at the IRS. You're a smart man. You're a smart man. You'd get an attorney. You'd take care of it. You'll do all the things. And I know that you know all this, and I know that you'd research it. But, you know, that's all going to cost money. Or... Or... If you're interested, and directly, he just says to the guard, I'd be glad to do it for free. The price would be three beers apiece for my co-workers. So in prison, on top of the prison roof right now, telling this guard, here's how to spend your money, and here's how I could do it for you for free, but you'll have to give all of my friends up here three beers. Right. <laughs> that is some gall. It's the it audacity. Is. Red even breaks the narrative and he's like, you know, I've talked to some of the other people that were up there on that roof that day. Wildest thing we've ever seen still to this day. Right. And and he was looking at Hadley and he just looks at him and he's like, there's no reason why Hadley had to like take his advice and there's no reason why Hadley didn't throw him over the the wall, but he didn't. No reason. And like right. it's its own sentence, its own paragraph. No reason, but he didn't. Right. And on the second to last day of the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory in 1950 ended up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock on a spring morning drinking black label beer supplied by the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. 
And Andy doesn't even drink any and of it. And he doesn't because, even drink any because he doesn't drink. Well, and that's something that we've kind of left out at this point until right now. And I feel like it's a good moment to reveal it. Well, Andy's a recovering and, well, alcoholic for the most he, part. Actually, we don't know that at this point. That's on the, the very oh, is that next one page. Let's find Only out? Andy didn't drink. Oh, I already told you about his drinking habits. So, yeah, I guess no, we did know that. We're about to. Yeah, we, we knew a little bit about it because it happens, if I recall correctly, during the uh, trial it says uh, he tells us about what he thinks happened and he's like mm-hmm. i did go there that night i did buy a gun to but it wasn't to kill her it was to kill myself right and i go there and i was sad and i was crying and i was drunk and i did some bad things and i left right and i think that he you know he just realized like ah i don't want to drink as much anymore like it kind of like really ruined some stuff for me mm-hmm. and so he doesn't drink as often in prison red tells us about how he would get one bottle on christmas so he could have a shot of christmas but then he'd and pass a shot it for around new years and then he would share it around he got a bottle for his birthday yep and so he'd he have a shot on his birthday just and to have then a couple of shots he never around. got drunk or he anything didn't get drunk. um and then we yeah he says, I thought there were nine of ten, nine or ten of us, but by 1955, there must have been 200 of us, maybe more, if you believed what you heard. And so this is where it's tall tale confirmed. Tall like, tale confirmed, This is yes. my friend who's a legend. Let me tell you about him. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like any number of things, you know. There were how many people there when the home run record was broken. And, yeah. you know, you, you know what the capacity of the ballparks are, but... You know, to talk to people now. Um, so it's that same kind of thing. That's pretty much where I'm at. Hey, Constant listeners. Otto here. Have you ever heard of something called bills? Well, Kim is explaining them to me, and apparently we need to pay them. So here's some commercials. Did you think the equipment just paid for itself? Well, I figured we had investors. <laughs> no? <laughs> Richie the Mouth with KTLA Radio, coming at you live with Larry Underwood's new hit single, Baby Can You Dig Your Man, with those smooth crooning tunes that'll make you swoon, listening to KTLA, woo, radio. From New York Times bestselling author Paul Sheldon comes Misery's Return, a rich young widower, a newly dead wife, a newborn baby, and their friend Gregory, also this guy with an offensive accent. Discover the intrigue of life as they take a trip to Africa. Discover resurrection and allergy comas. Bees? A goddess bee? Join Misery as we have never seen her before as Paul Sheldon breathes new life into a timeless classic coming August 44th, 2012. Hi, constant listeners. If you're looking for another way to support First Time Through, you can do that at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash through. There, you can get access to exclusive content, including video reviews of the movies based on the books that we've read, exclusive pictures and blogs, as well as exclusive early access to episodes, sometimes up to days early, but sometimes hours early. What a great time to find your freedom. Hit the open road with Greyhound. All one-way tickets, just forty-four ninety-five. Don't forget to grab your postcard at the official Greyhound desk before boarding your bus. Okay, so, so Andy, we're here, we finished the book, um, 
sorry. I'm just trying to like figure out a good segue that I can just like edit right in because mm-hmm. um, it makes it so much easier for me. Yeah. Um, welcome back, everyone. I get the ha. That's it. Yeah, go. that's why you say it. Welcome back, everyone. Um, during the commercial break, I did, in fact, finish the book and uh, cried at the end. It was very satisfying. It's a really good ending. Um, and we're just going to keep discussing it. So we're starting today. Well, today. This is the Thanksgiving episode, so we're doing this whole story, like, through one whole episode. Yeah. So we're continuing this story you were just listening to about five minutes ago. And now it's uh, 1950, and we're going to hear, from Red's point of view, why Andy was so sad during this time, and what had happened. You know, I was thinking about Brooks, specifically. He's the first character we're about to meet, like, that isn't been talked about in a minute. Right. Um, and he's the librarian before Andy, because Andy's about to become the head librarian and essentially take over the librarian library. I wonder if Brooks feels like the inspiration or like part of the idea behind this story to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I feel like Brooks is one of the most likely characters that you would have met in the 60s and 70s in real life, you know? Like, I feel like it's not as realistic to meet, like, a hotshot lawyer, like, who's got all this money, or, like, a lifelong criminal who's been in there since 16. But Brooks, you know, somebody that gets out at 50, 60, and just isn't able to be out anymore, like, there's a good chance you met him at the grocery store, or, like, did one of these random things, or worked with him. And I think that it makes me wonder if there was a character like that in Steve's life, if he had met a Brooks. And I mean, that's that's a very real possibility. He had a life sentence. Actually, had three life sentences. Brooks did, and you know, and he says it uh, as usual. The state, in all its wisdom, had let him go long after any chance he might have had to become a useful part of society was gone. He was sixty-eight, arthritic, and tottered out of the main gate in his Polish suit and his French shoes. It makes sense, though, because doesn't pose as much of a threat like red has said already right you know you get older you don't seem like you're as much of a threat they let you go and because right before that they tell us that he was in prison because he had killed his wife and daughter after a losing streak of poker right and it was when coolidge was president so it's been a few days a couple of weeks right and he was in charge of the library, and the library at this point is a, a storage closet. It's tiny, it's small, and I think one really fun uh, like metaphor that we get through this second half of the novella is the bigger the library gets, the more power Andy has. Yes. So it's, but it's also at some points he has more to lose. Yeah, he absolutely has more to lose. You know. Um... For for Brooks, it was just something to keep him busy. Everybody has a job when you're in prison, and that was his. Um, you know, and he passed out Reader's Digest and National Geographic. So that's it. Uh, you know, it makes him seem educated, though. But he's, he's smart. but he's educated. I yeah, mean, he no. does have he does have some education, which is more than a lot of people in prison have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Andy's probably. I mean, and it's implied, and I think he even says it a couple of times, Andy is absolutely the most educated man in the prison. Oh, for sure. The most educated prisoner in the prison. I um, would he say may, he may be he's more pretty consistently than, the most educated man in the story. Than, yeah, than anybody. I think Red is wiser than him, but that's just because I think that Red has a certain, like, pragmatic 
wisdom in the way he views the world now. Yeah, and and Red is older than him, so he mm-hmm. has had. He's just not trying to take as many chances. Right. And I think, in my opinion, that's wise. I don't know if it is, but maybe the wisdom is actually knowing when to take chances. Right. But we get into Brooks becomes. It's funny because I remember in the movie Brooks is like him getting out of prison. And everything that's like a ten minute story, and like mm-hmm. it's really touching. And like some people like talk about it's the most important part of the movie for them. It's two and a half paragraphs here, and it we're is. right into the next part. It is. And and immediately, we just have Andy took over Brooksy's job. He was doing it for 23 years. And Red, I think this talks about the conscious memory of Red. Again, he remembers step by step what this man did to accomplish these goals. And I think that's really cool that... He, oh, I don't know if it's cool. I think it really shows that he's pretty infatuated with Andy still. Again, that again, he's that, still like, he's got that wow, crush going I remember on. Everything. everything. Yes, he does. You know, and and you know, he goes on to talk about how Andy expands the library and how he he gets different things for everybody. He gets hobby books and fiction, and <laughs> he even kept a box of. Fairly spicy paperbacks under the checkout desk. So he's got something for everybody to read in the library. Um, something for everybody to do. Yeah. Uh, and they really start to talk about, uh, he puts out a suggestion box and asks people for what they want. Um, and he gets actual information about how they want, like, small hobby books, like mm-hmm. soap carving and woodworking and sleight of hand. Like, little things that you could actually, like, maybe it's not useful like useful in prison but it's something that can occupy time occupy time um and it's really fantastic because andy gets really impassioned by this i think he finally gets a little bit more of like an internal goal here well yeah and i think that it andy was obviously a goal-driven person on the outside Mm -hmm. he was the youngest person in his position or whatever yeah uh, at his at the bank when he whenever all of the the things went down with his wife and you know so he was obviously goal-driven and this gave him a purpose Mm -hmm. um even though he knew that it was not about the library for the administration for the wardens it was not about him having the library it was not about giving the prisoners anything from it it was about the control that they could exert over him by letting him by keep letting this him thing. have this thing mm-hmm. yeah it's almost the permission aspect makes it so much more important to him because he knows it can be taken away at any moment yep and we get into it's almost like in my head when I was reading through it, I imagined like the montage of the movie. Like this is mm-hmm. a really like I can't wait to watch the movie on this one. I know. This um, is it's such gonna be a really fun. Uh, and we just start talking about like pretty much like the fifties and the sixties. Andy starts writing. Uh, he asks the warden at that time, Stamis, if he can write letters to the prison to the state the senate. State senate, and he says, "Sure, if you think that'll do something, I'll even pay for it." And Andy has this really good line that I just, it was interesting. And he says, uh, Andy smiled his small, composed smile and asked Damis what would happen to a block of concrete if a drop of water fell on it once every year for a million years. Which is fun because at this point, now that I've finished the story, I know that he's already started his own little uh, passive 
rock concrete project. project. Yes. Um, and he's, I think he really gets off on these small little moments where he just gets to be better than everyone. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he has to. Well, this yeah. Is the little things to enjoy in prison. By 1951, Andy was doing the tax returns of half the screws at Shawshank. By 52, he was doing all of them. And he was paid in prison's most valuable coin, simple goodwill. And I think that's another important thing about him setting up the library and like appealing to all of the prisoners themselves, getting them all books that they like is, well, that's Andy. He set up the library. He's the one that got me that Louis L'Amour book. Like, I right. can't get rid of Like, I can't do something to him. Right. Now he's got lots of people on his side. You know, and these these guys that he's doing taxes for, I'm sure that they were paying, you know, H&R Block or the equivalent of to do that before. And so now they're he's saving them money and he is helping them find the tax loopholes that maybe their regular regular Mm -hmm. accountant wouldn't help them find or couldn't help them find. And. Um, so most likely shouldn't help them find. I don't. I don't know. I mean, like they, you don't think Andy. Well, I bet he's probably not trying to like make anything worse for anyone. But right. also, he's already in a pre- pretty bad position. Right. But I mean, I feel like it's that I, moral gray area. It yeah. is like the bank tax that we were talking about. He's right. going to transfer it to his wife, and it's like, no, it's technically legal. There's nothing wrong with it. But the way you're skirting around it is obviously not the way that that's supposed to be used. Right. Um, and we just get into really starting to understand how much money is going into this prison from an, on some illegal aspects. You know, there is an automotive repair service that they use the prisoners to fix cars. There is a big trade in pills. And they have this really fun. I think it's fun how Red talks. It's almost like Stephen King wrote him just to, like, have little one-liners off, mm-hmm. like little one-offs. As he says this... Uh, they took him out of the laundry and installed him in the library. But if you wanted to look at it another way, they never took him out of the laundry at all. Yep. And he starts talking about how there's laundering money. It's right. funny. It's the, very the, clever. It's, yeah. You know. Red's a very good storyteller. Red is a very good storyteller. Mm. I, and, and again, the movie just, it's just amazing. Um, it's, it's a great fantastic. movie. It's a fantastic movie. So then we get this part where, Red, like, it seems to be the only point of contention Red ever had with him. And Andy has been laundering the money from this pill trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's about pretty much, like, the guards would bring in pills and sell it to the inmates and whoever. And then they would take the money and Andy would launder it out and buy it in stocks and bonds and municipals and whatever. Right. Um, so that way it would be not, you know, cash pill money that he they got from prison. Right. Um, so he's just becoming not only a mainstay in their lives, somebody they see, he's, they see every day. He's a charming, fun man to talk to. He's not trying to rock the boat ever. He's also helping them prepare for their future and give right. their children things and right. all of these things. So he's becoming like an economic staple in their lives. Right. And as we were about to talk about, the point of contention Red has is he doesn't like that he's helping them bring in these pills. Right. I don't want to tell you how to do your business, but they make me nervous. Mm-hmm. Reds, uppers, downers, numbatals, like everything. And it's just... Andy then talks about 
the fine gray line that there is to actually be. You know, you can look at life either white and black, like good, or evil, or you can realize that sometimes to thrive and survive, you have to walk a gray line. Yep. And he has, I do like this part where he talks about, you know, all you can really do is believe that what you're doing is right. Yes. And do that thing. And do that thing. And he knows that what he's doing is buying the library. Mm-hmm. You know, whether he actually believes in the pills or supports any of that nonsense that's going on, and he specifically says he doesn't, but he knows that that's what's buying the library. That's oh, what's yeah. buying him that safety. That's what's buying him his single bunk. That's what's keeping him in his cell by himself. I think during this time uh, is when he gets the... Uh, he starts getting funds from the Senate, too. Mm-hmm. He's written them a letter every week since that time that he had started and asked the warden at that point. They give him $500, and they're like, go away. And then he says, no, you're, you're listening to me now. Here's two letters a week. Yeah. And eventually it just grows and grows and grows until he's getting thousands, uh, $1,000 every month, which is... That's a lot of 50s money. 50s and 60s is especially a lot of money. Right, and, and he makes deals with book clubs he's he's in he's turning around and investing that money he's thrifty yeah and he's investing it into the library and he's getting a lot more books he's getting more things that people like um and we figure out that we don't figure out we find out that there's one big thing that he's also getting out of all of this right here at this like almost scene break and he's getting private quarters he doesn't have a roommate in his cell in his cell which is pretty good um I'm sorry, I keep feeling like... And as we know, it's really important. Very important. Very important. And we get, we learn about Norma Den. And I think, like, also, like, the way that Stephen King talks about people, it's progressive for, like, the 70s and 80s when it's written. Mm -hmm. But now it would be, like, considered controversial. But I think that that's the thing well, about also, reading something that's yeah. 40 years old. Well, and is, it's also something that is set in oh, the 50s. Oh, this is almost 50 years old. Yeah. Hush. <laughs> Do you enjoy that? <laughs> it's almost 50 years old, this story. Uh, it's almost, a, it's technically a classic, isn't it? It kind of is. Oof. Actually, wow. it's not 50, because this was in 82, so. 40, 38. 40. 38 40. 40 years. Okay, I'm sorry. Bad Hush. math at my part. I went to public school. <laughs> I did too, but I can do math. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you're just smarter than me. And we talked to Norma Den. We find out about Normadin and Red, uh, you know, he doesn't seem to be an s- important part of the story right now. Right. He's just a fun little foreshadowing part. He's he is. only here to make you right. question and wonder. Right, and he's only and here wonder. for like two, pages. Two, par- two paragraphs. I mean, not even, I don't even think he's here two pages. Oh, no, because then he starts talking about how uh, he's gotten more posters. Yep, yep. You know, and, and Norman did you know, he's like, Andy was a nice guy. Never made fun of me. But that cell had a bad draft. Nice man. Bad draft. You yeah. know, and then we talk about the progression of posters. You know, he started with Rita Hayworth. Then he, uh, she hung there until 1955, if I remember right. Then Marilyn Monroe. Um, and then Jane, Jane Mansfield. Mansfield. 
Hazel Court, Raquel Welch, and then Linda Ronstadt. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the reason he does is because you look at those pretty women and you feel like you could almost, not quite, but almost step right through them and be beside them. Be free. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why I liked Raquel Welch the best. It looked like it was just her on some beach. And Andy says he wants to go and just go to Mexico and live his life and not have to worry about this place where he can just like put his feet in the sand and not have to think. Yeah. Which I bet would be nice after the first five years of prison being gang raped and you're in your like what 12th or 13th year now yeah. like just ready You've been to, here a while. You're, 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 you're ready to, to move on. You oh know? yeah. And then the big antagonist of the story really shows up. They're like the big bad honestly. Samuel Norton is oh, yeah. the big bad. He He's got uh the new warden and he has got jesus in his pocket so he's extra precautious and he's got a he says this part where he says uh norton had a bible verse for every moment and he does he quotes the bible quite a few times right and we find out that just because uh, he's got jesus in his pocket it doesn't mean that he treats people well no no he does not you know um they he talks about Solitary was always well populated. Men lost their teeth not from beatings but from bread and water diets. Began to be called be called the grain and drain, as in I'm on the Sam Norton grain and drain train, boys. And he steps right in and continues to work those rackets. Absolutely. So he's got all this money still coming in. In fact, he starts to invest it and find more ways to make more money. More money. I think. One of the most clever things that Steve does with this aspect here is he introduces this character right after he introduces that little bit of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. So you have that little bit of foreshadowing, and it's like, oh, man, that's really interesting. Why does it have the draft? Like, what is he right. doing with the posters? And then it doesn't matter because now there's this actual big bad. Right. And it gets to this... That he spends, what, two and a half pages, just like a really good chunk of the story... Uh, talking about this man yes you know when the when the story is only you know a hundred pages long if you spend two and a half three pages on one literally three percent of the book on describing one person's actions and behaviors and personality you know that they're going to be a staple and he gives you all of those clues for the ending the twists yes but then he immediately pulls your attention away from them by introducing the big bad, the antagonist. Yep. It's really just a clever move, and I really liked that a lot. Yes. And I, that's something I actually just didn't notice until I'm doing it like right now, That, because like, it had pulled me so far out of it that I didn't remember all of that foreshadowing until I'm getting to the end, and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. he's mentioned those yeah. things, and that was fun. And then we get to the fun part, uh, Tommy Williams. And Tommy Williams is a man who's been in and out of prison for quite a while. He's a family man. And at this point, Andy has made it his pretty much a hobby. Yeah, his, yeah he's, his, he's got his library up and running. He's got it funded. So now he's, his new project is teaching. He's teaching. He's helping you know, the inmates better themselves. Because not everybody's in, in there for life. So he's trying to, to help them... Learn to be able to better function on the outside. Mm-hmm. So Andy ends up meeting Tommy Williams mm-hmm. in the library, teaching him to get his high school degree. And 
he's been working with him for a couple months. Tommy's doing laundry, and he asks his partner, hey, uh, Andy's, what is he in here for? Like, he's that smart banker guy. Like, he doesn't seem like he'd be in here for something. Mm -hmm. And they tell him the story that everyone's heard that he killed this, uh, his wife with the guy that she was with, some professional golfer. Right. And then Tommy Williams just stands up and almost faint fainting stands up he's just turns white and catatonic and like completely checks out to the point where they have to shut down the laundry line mm-hmm. or else they're gonna like hurt someone and break something and he ends up going to solitary and he gets a black mark on his uh record but as soon as he gets out he comes to talk to uh, andy. andy comes to talk to andy and he yeah and he said it was as if tommy had produced a key with fit a cage in the back of his mind a cage like his own cell only instead of holding a man that cage held a tiger and that tiger's name was hope yes. it's ferocious and it's gnawing and, and it's going to be it there is. aggressively and here it is Andy has never taken to being institutionalized like so many men like Red talks about being institutionalized and, and how these these guys once they're there, especially the long timers, they don't know how to function on the outside. Andy's never really gotten where he feels more comfortable inside than he would outside. He's never been there, but now he's always had hope that something would happen. He knew that he was innocent. He knew he didn't do it. Yeah. And you know, and now here it is. Tommy Williams shows up and he tells he him, lets "Hey, it out." I went uh, to this prison, and my inmate there, the guy, my inmate, my prisoner partner, what am I saying? Cellmate. Cellmate. Jesus. (laughs) Cellmate. My cellmate there was a man named Elwood Blatch, and he talked about how he murdered that professional golfer. And he talks about Elwood Blatch as a person and how he's really jumpy and trigger happy, and he says that he would have known that he specifically said Quentin. So he knows that it's the same golfer at least. Right. But Elwood had said lawyer instead of banker. And there was a couple of other discrepancies. But but the story was too close it's to too not close. be the same story. And Andy has also not told anyone like the names or anything. They've right. only been able to find out through the court cases and all these other through things. Through the newspapers, so. yeah. It's just what's been public record. And... He's just talking about how he'd not. He starts talking about how Elwood had just robbed a bunch of places, and he thinks that he'd probably was in there. Then they made a noise or something while they were doing something, and he shot them both. And the biggest thing is that apparently there's no signs of robbery. Right. And that will always be like the big one that like the big question of why. yeah. Yeah. But also it could be that Blatch like entered. Heard them, shot immediately, and was like, I can't stick around and rob this place. I got to get out. Right. Which would make sense. The next the next section. I guess you can see why Andy went a little wonky when Tommy told him that story and why he wanted to see the warden right away. You know, he knew, again, Andy knew that he didn't do this. And here was his ticket. Here Somebody that could, like, ticket. make you know, it true. Right. Verify here's, it. Here's the first link in the chain that would get him to... A new trial or, you know, being exonerated or whatever, at least an appeal. Here's the first link in that chain to getting this righted. And then, so he knows that he has to get to talk to the 
warden, mm-hmm. Samuel Norton at this point. So he starts, he makes an appointment, and the next day he goes in and talks to him, and he says, I am able to have all of these things, and we find this bit of information out. I really love how Steve gives it to us, but we find out that Elwood Blatch actually worked at the country club that Andy went to. Right. And he had been a man, just an unassuming, bald man, that really, like, dark, heavy set, uh, not heavy set, like, really deep deep set set eyes. eyes. Right. And he said, you would remember this man if you saw him. And, like, the way that Tommy describes him, he knew that he was the same man. Right. And he knew that Quentin went to the same country club as them. Yep. So he would have known that he was there. He would have been able to case him. He would have known all of these things. And Samuel Norton does not care. Yeah, I mean, and that's it. It, Absolutely. And again, here we're going to use this analogy again. He's not going to let his golden goose out. You can't. You can't. Not especially not at this point. No, because he's, I mean, he's got so much money coming through there from all his shady dealings, and Andy's keeping it clean. Mm -hmm. Andy's making him a rich man. A rich man. And. Andy's just not having it. I think this is like he really loses his composure. He starts yelling. They'll have W-2s. They'll have all these things. Right. And Samuel Norton quotes the Bible and sends him to solitary. Yep. Does not want to hear it. And basically calls him an idiot. Yeah. Like, I can't believe that you were stupid enough to listen to this guy's story. He obviously just thinks that you're cool and he wants to be your friend. He wants you to like him. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing I really like that Steve does through the novel is novella excuse me is put world events through to mm-hmm. help you gauge time so then at this point he's like ah like president kennedy was a promising a fresh assault on poverty not knowing he only has half a year to live the beatles are starting to emerge the boston red sox are going to win a thing um and andy has been asking every single day since he's gotten out of solitary if he can meet with the warden to talk to him again. And he's right. been thinking and planning and plotting. And Red says that he is a different man after he gets out of solitary. Okay. Yeah, no, the first time was when he fought back from the sisters. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so this that's is right. just the yeah. second time because he hasn't been in there for a long time. Right. And so he's in there for 20 days. And then they talk about how the longest person that was ever in solitary was this kid named the Durnham Boy. And he was in there for seven years. But he was 14 when he went in. So he's like, that's young. Like, you're able to survive a little bit better. And he's just been sitting there for his 20 days thinking about exactly how he can do this and what he can do. He comes out and he starts assaulting Norton with requests for meetings. And eventually Norton is annoyed. And at the end of June in 67, he is able to finally talk to him. Right. And... Red makes it very specific that he didn't even hear about this from Andy until seven years later. Right. So some of these things that we're finding out, like now, from this point to the end, this isn't tall tales, myths, and legends anymore. Like, right. And this maybe is... even some of the beginning is less, like, it's less suspect to me now because I think a lot more of it's come from Andy. Now. Right, because now it's, now Red and Andy are, are friends. good friends mm-hmm. and Andy's telling him these things. It's not just... It's not hearsay anymore. It's it's directly from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Um, mm, you know, and if that's the squeeze, you don't have to worry about it. You think I'd talk that up? I'd be cutting my thro- own throat. I'd be just indictable. It was the money. And he thinks that Norton's just scared that Andy will leave we'll talk. and rat on him. Right. And... It's surprising to me that Andy doesn't even 
for one moment conceive the idea that it's because he's become too valuable. Mm. He, he's, it is just because he thinks that he's scared that Norton will end up in prison. Right. Um, but I think it's also because he just kind of assumes that Norton is a man that is actually of the justice community. Right, right. He he feels like this is a warden doesn't want to put a wrong man in prison, right? Right, except that that is totally not the case. He and, you know, he care. says, you know, with... I can hire a lawyer with Tommy's testimony and the employment records and all the things we can, we can put this together. And then the warden tells him Tommy's no longer an inmate of this facility. Yep. So Tommy's gone. Now his, his, his link to the outside, that first link to the outside is gone. The first testimony that can link him to being innocent. Right. The first thing that can prove it, it's just gone. And it's been transferred to a super low security prison that he might even get out early. And on the right. weekends, he can go and see his wife. Yeah. So very obviously, someone has made a deal. Right. Right. And. Well, and then he, you know, Norton says uh, he checked with Rhode Island. They did have an inmate named Elwood Blatch. He was given what they call a PP, provisional parole. Another one of those crazy liberal programs to put criminals out on the streets. He has since disappeared so he's gone now tommy's gone that's that first link elwood blatch is no longer a prisoner he's gone that's the second link it's gone his his steps to the outside are gone and we find out more about that here in just a little bit yeah. too and essentially uh we get this really long monologue from norton and he just says, I'm going to be watching you. You're going to be on thin ice. Don't make any, don't do anything wrong. Right. And Andy says, well, I'm not going to do anything wrong because I'm done doing all of your things for you. Right. And Norton's like, oh, for that, you're going to solitary. Because he told them to not talk about money again. Yep. For 30 days. 30 days. So now he's 50 days. Mm-hmm. Oof. Over the course of like a year. That's a lot of time yeah, that's a to lot be alone and in a cell. And oh, wow. And he says, if you don't do exactly what you've been doing, you'll lose everything. Is that clear? Right. And he'll lose his one bunk, his rocks, his poster, everything. And he's Red says, I guess it was clear enough. And we get into when Andy Dufresne starts to become a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. And from this point on, the story gets a lot faster. It takes more gaps. It's not trying to tell us, like... It's not so day by day. Mm -mm. Andy's now, also, it seems to be a lot more patient now. He's yes. not doing things every day. He's right. doing one thing consistently every day. Yes. And 19 years later, Andy asks him for another rock hammer. And he had literally put the other one down to a little metal nub. Like, he had used it so much. So much. Yeah, and he says... Uh, 19 years, first time it went for, had been a $10 item, and then it was 22, 19 years later. So, yeah. Yeah. Funny little mica sculptures that were held together with airplane glue. Various sedimentary conglomerates that were polished and cut in such a way where you could see why Andy called them Millennium Sandwiches. You know, just back to the... 
keeping his hands busy. Outwardly, the things that we saw him keeping his hands busy. You know, so on the outside, at least, things were the same. And it makes this specific point to tell us that for the first time since he's been in prison, Andy started to be exactly like everyone else. Mm -hmm. He was quiet and introspective. He was brooding. And Warden Norton is super happy about it. Very pleased. He feels like he broke broke his puppy. Right. And Red is so specific about how Andy's eyes are not broken, though. Mm -hmm. He's still got the fire of, like, men that just are broken in prison. And he also just has so much fun in the story telling us that with these little one-liners, at least for a while. At least for a while. And then we get to hear about the Red Sox uh, winning the World Series in 67 and how everybody was super excited. Even Oh, no, they didn't. No. (laughs) No, Oh, no, they they, didn't win. They didn't didn't win. I don't know, baseball. Yeah, well, the Red Sox didn't win the World Series for a really long time. Well, they didn't win this time But they were in. No, they didn't. They were in, like, the the finals. They were in the World Cup. They did win the pennant instead of, you know, dead last that's not awful (laughs) but it was definitely not the world series and uh pretty much andy just has been sitting looking at rocks during all this as they were listening on the radio to the world series Mm -hmm. and uh red comes over into him and just they start chatting start chatting and andy is just beaming with happiness like he talks about he's radiating he's just so happy right Uh, and he's like wow he must have really like just he says that it must be just from the group like you know everyone being so excited everyone's excited about the the world World series so you know of course andy's excited even though yeah and andy immediately is like you ever been to mexico you know anything about mexico have you ever been to Zahuataneo? I don't know how to say Zahuataneo. it. Zahuataneo. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just talk about Mexico for like another like two or three pages. Right. Are you? And we find out that Andy, before he went to prison, in the like one month that he had, he sold all of his things, started a fake name, bought cash or bought bonds and stocks with that fake name. And he had then, a friend manage it for mm-hmm, him. During the entire time that he's been in prison. Right. So he's been making a little bit of money on the outside this entire time. Right. And now he's got it like, what, what was it, 100000 or something like that? I think that's what it says, yeah. $14,000. I mean... Which... No, no, that's what he had when he, like, that's what he invested. And he says, yep, Peter Stevens $370,000 plus change. So Red just found out that Andy is... Wealthy, mm-hmm. and in prison, and in prison, and, and his and his wealth is stored under a different name. A name, yep. So and he can't, so he can't even get to it. And he says that specifically that he can't use it because it'll be too fishy, especially because the first thing he would use it for is to hire a really good lawyer for himself. Right, and and his friend can't use it for him because his friend that managed it for him died, just passed away. Yeah, and so, I think that that news with everything. With everything else, and then, you know, the fact that he can't get to his money, and that his friend can't get to his money, and so he can't get... He I doesn't think, have anybody to help him on the outside. I don't know if this outside. is him asking Red for help during that. I think this is him telling Red because he likes him, he's mm-hmm. become his friend, and he doesn't want to see the money just forgotten about, if nothing else. Right. Well, and I think that this is... And, and we find out that... 
he he does have a purpose in telling Red this. He absolutely has a purpose in telling Red this story. He definitely has story. a long play on it. And and it is a long play and it's I mean And so eventually, essentially we find out here one of the most important plot points and this is pretty much like from here it's all downhill. Now like mm-hmm. this is like the highest stakes set in the stage like here's what we're trying to achieve and can we do it? Let's find out through the rest of the book. And we find out that Andy has all of Peter Stevens' IDs, social security card, driver's license, everything is in a box out there in a cornfield in the middle of Maine in a little black in a little stone wall. Underneath a piece of volcanic glass is a security deposit box key. Key, right. And he says it's facing north. It's next to this tree. It looks like it would be out of a poem. And those are the only, like, real clues that you get. Can Find that cornfield. Go for good, it. Good luck with that. <laughs> and that's just a wild, funny right. thing to me. Right. And this becomes the driving force. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just, it's... I'm going to go back to, you know, he set up this fake identity in the 40s. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no such thing as a picture ID. So it everything's out of date, but, you know. It's pretty easy to just, like, go and, like, especially if you still have the ID. Right, to if you've just got like all get the it. things, mm-hmm. if you've got the birth certificate and the social security card and the driver's license and, and everything, it's all, it's, it's all there. His, he, and that's, I mean, I can't even fathom. You know, he he had the the first two links of the chain to get him out, mm-hmm. and he knew that the key to his actual freedom is laying in a hayfield in Maine under a rock where his friend put it for him, and now his friend is dead, and he's locked up inside. I can't. I mean, he says specifically every day. I look so hard. At the construction projects in Buxton to make sure not someone is just going to accidentally take all of my life. And he says, Reg's just completely astounded and asks him, how, is, how do you keep from going crazy? And he just smiles and says, so far all quiet on the Western Front. And this is where we realize, like, Andy... Andy's I a man s- with a plan. And I said at the beginning, like, he seems really underwhelming at first. Mm-hmm. And I think that I want to re- change that. He's not underwhelming. He's unassuming. He's unassuming. He's trying still, to fly under the radar so still much. Still waters run really deep. And, and Andy is a really deep person. You know, he's, there's just so much to him. And again, this is, this is one of my favorite things about reading Steve all of his characters, even in a hundred-page novel, I want to know what happens to Andy next. I want to know what happens to Red next. I want to know these men. He makes them so real. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like they're my friends. <laughs> and, and you know, in a hundred pages. Yeah. And it's just so, especially Red... The way he talks to you, the mm-hmm. way he like makes you a part of the story, and like, uh, just like, wow, buddy, can you believe that part of the story? Let's right. keep going. Right. It's really good, um, and I think at this point, even uh, he pretty much goes right out on a limb, and he says, 
Red, when we get out of here, how about you come down to Mexico with me and you work in uh, the hotel I'm going to open right. on the beach. And it's not going to be like a kiddie hotel. It's going to be like one for like adults on their honeymoons or like fourth honeymoons. It's going to be like, you know, a fancy one. And he said, we're not getting out of prison, you silly dog. And he said, we'll see. And it's just so like at this point, even Stephen King is like, OK, so obviously Andy's trying to break out of prison, guys. Right. Let's talk about jailbreaks now. Right. Right. And it's just really funny, like way that he gets into it. He's like, have you guys got the clues yet? Are we all on the same page? This is <laughs> okay, the hope. Here we go. He's trying. Right. And. Uh, so then he talks about. Um, the inside know, out program. The inside out program. The jailbreaks and the jail from breaks there. from there and the jailbreaks from Shawshank. And, uh, you know, over the years. There wasn't a lot. A hand, yeah, there were, there were several, but only a handful that actually got away. Um, and, you know, and Red says, anyhow, the day of that conversation about Mexico and about Mr. Peter Stevens, that was the day I began to believe that Andy had some idea of doing a disappearing act. Even the characters are aware. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's now. been enough hints. We're all on the same We're page. We're all on the same page here. Um, um, and Andy... And Warden, there's this fun part where they're like, Andy would never be on the Inside Out program because even Norton's scared of him, like, trying to get out mm-hmm. and, like, escape. So they're trying to keep him as happy as possible while keeping him broken and everything. And Yeah, it's it, it's a fine balance. They they need him to keep doing the, the laundry, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So they need to keep him at least at a certain level of complacency. But they also need him under their thumb. And then we have this little bit right here before the scene break where Red just talks about, hey, you could do all of these things to be free still. Like, there's no reason for you to not do these things. And he just smiles and says, yeah, you're right. That would be, hmm, I'll think about it. Yep. And then he says apparently he'd been thinking about a lot of other things. Scene break. In 1975, Andy Dufresne escaped from Shawshank. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> this is like, okay, like, no, like... Just bear it all out there, like reveal, and it's a really like strong, powerful reveal it too. Is. I really like it a lot. Um, also, I think like once we learn like how red just writing this, these little like scene breaks are probably like moments where he got interrupted and had to oh, like, yeah. like yeah, yeah. put it away. Um, miscount or a practical joke. So essentially, all of them come out, and there's one person missing, and he doesn't. It's Andy. He's not there. So they all right. go back to their cell, and they're making jokes and stuff, and they go and find his cell empty. And they, no one knows where he's at. He's just right, gone. Right. Yeah. He was there at. Can at I say like out. one thing that like is sketchy to me? How did he rehang the poster? Well, and I this is, and I guess this is probably from seeing the movie. He probably didn't take the poster down. Well, I'm, yeah, he maybe probably he probably like, just pulled it up from the bottom and went under it, and it fell back down. Mm, maybe okay that makes sense too. I mean that's that's how they portray it in the movie, movie. and it, it felt very realistic Natural. that makes me. sense I mean yeah. it especially like, if you secure the top enough yeah. yeah if the top is secure you lift it up from the bottom you go out so essentially it falls back down into place Andy had been using uh, we get a lot of like it's pretty much like a Scooby-Doo scene right here it is it is and he's <laughs> it just like is. they're running around like where did he go where did he disappear to we'll never find him and it's just literally written like a Scooby-Doo scene it and is. then he starts re- yelling at the guards and he's like I'll kill you all <laughs> and you could just it ends with uh, Red just saying I could hear Andy Dufresne laughing right because he knows oh yeah I mean 
he doesn't know the particulars of it, but he knows his friend has been used and abused and mistreated, and he knows that he was really a truly innocent man in prison. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, Andy... And he's resourceful. Yeah, he's incredibly <laughs> resourceful because we find out that his plan had been taken all 20 years, like, right. or the entire like time the that he'd been in yeah. prison. And, like, and we find that, well... Red assumes that he started it the day that he got the Rita Hayworth poster. Right. And what Andy has been doing is taking this rock hammer and just pecking away at the concrete in his cell day by day, making a big hole and the hole that he could climb through and like kind of like burrow through. And then at, in the middle of like the wall, it seems, so five feet in, there's just like where your pipes would be at. Yeah, a little a gap. gap so that way you mm-hmm. could get in and fix pipes if something breaks and that kind of stuff. And Andy gets into that, and he starts exploring it, goes all the way to the bottom, and finds that this is the pipe that leads out. Right. Most likely, he saw the blueprints, I feel. Yeah, yeah. In charge of the library, he has a lot of pull. I feel like he definitely could have found them. Yep. He breaks into that water main, the the escape pipe, uh, and it's a a sewer pipe. It's a sewer pipe, yeah. So it is (laughs) nothing but, like, prison toilet. Yes. And he crawls his way out. And he escapes through the end of it. And the pipe can't be more than a couple feet wide. Yeah. It's probably, like, maybe two feet wide. It's tiny, tiny. And he has to go, like, half a football field yeah, just crawling through it. 500 yards. No, no, no. Oh, five that's five football, football fields. fields. Five yes. football fields. And Red, the way he talks about it, Red is just so proud of him. Yeah. He's just like, it's, it's incredible. Like, it's amazing. Boy. Like, that's my man. Uh <laughs> And he just starts really hypothesizing about all the ways that, like, why this would have happened or all of these things. And I think, I think in the context of the story, we're about to find out that Red is about to get out of prison. Mm-hmm. We're about to Finally. find out that he, he's old and used up. He's old, used up. And he's writing this story pretty much because he wants to remember it and he wants to tell everyone it. And I think that this is him just postulating for so long because he's scared of to do anything. So, like, this has been his escape, like Paul Sheldon's, you know? Right. He's been writing this story because he's like, ah, if I focus on, like, my past a little bit, my time in prison, like, I'll go back to that. And um, he broke the... And he talks about, like, the plan and how meticulous Andy is for a really long time. I think he really enjoys, like, thinking about it. and like Because he was just never able to break out himself. And he just loves that his friend was able to do it. And you were, uh, it's, he says uh, that I'm in this little, uh, like, halfway house, essentially. I got mm-hmm. paroled. I'm staying here. I got this little job at a grocery store. But he just can't stop thinking about Andy in Mexico. And he's been writing this story. Oh, he writes the story in prison still. And then. And he takes it out with him. Yep. And then he gets paroled. Right. So everything up to this point has been him writing it in prison. Right. Just for enjoyable, I guess. And now he is out of prison. He gets paroled. He's living in this little place. He gets the job at the grocery store, and he can't stop thinking about Mexico. He can't stop thinking about Andy. And he he has this little hobby now where Mm -hmm. he just goes to Buxton, where that cornfield was. Hayfield. Where the hayfield hayfield was. was. Yep. And he spends his entire weekend, just every single weekend, looking for Andy's hayfield. Just hoping that he can find it. And he says it starts to become the best thing in his life. Just 
100% seeing the, the fish and or the fish, the animals and the fishermen right. and the people that had like were around there. And then what was it? Two big field I walked squelching the squirrel. I thought I had said a couple. Then came April 23rd. And a day I'll not forget if I live another 58 years. And he remembers every detail mm-hmm. down to the weather, the road, what he'd eaten for lunch. And that's when you know something super. Oh, yeah, it's, because it's mm. that day is etched in his memory. And he's walking in the hayfield, and he finds the volcanic glass that had been left for Andy. And he picks it up, and there's a letter underneath it. And it says, Dear Red. And at this point, if you're me, you probably started crying a little <laughs> yeah. bit. I, I, like, I couldn't just, like... The way that, like, he's like, I couldn't read it there. I thought I was going to get caught and get in trouble. So I ran back to my hotel room and I just opened it and read it. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, and then there was 20 new $50 bills. And he gives them $1,000. And I'm just crying as I'm reading the rest of this. Because it was really, it's really, really well written. It's so powerful. And It's so powerful. The way that Red's just so unassuming. He doesn't ever think that he's actually going to find this hayfield. Yeah. But he just gives him that sense of like reconnecting with his friend. But then friend. he did, and now his and his and and his friend didn't forget him. Yeah, I no. mean, there's got to be he didn't that, only that not emotional. Forget his him. friend didn't forget he him. Says, and he says, "Come set him to up. Mexico. Come, come, come to know. where I am. You know where I'm mm. at. I told you where I was going. We had this talk. Yeah. Now, now that you've done this part, take that next step. Come on." And uh, Red doesn't know what to do. And then he says, "And here it is. This is my absolute a it's number a, it, one." As soon as like I read it, I was like, "Yep." In the whole it's really Stephen good. King universe, all this is it. This right here. This is my favorite line he has ever written, ever. Get busy living or get busy dying. It's really good. It's it's so powerful. It's so small. It's, it's like it's, compact. It is, but it's 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 so perfect. You know you. People, and we all do it, we all get so busy with the busyness of life. Are we really living? And it's it's get busy living. Get busy doing the things that you're passionate about. Get busy doing the things. Get busy living, actually experiencing your life. Or just keep busy being busy and dying. And to me, that is the most powerful line. It's my favorite Stephen King line in all all the books ever. Especially for Red, he spent his whole life whole just life. dying. Just dying. That's all he's been doing and is just getting is, busy dying. And now he can actually, decision. he's, he's like I was talking about, the wisdom. Mm-hmm. He has the wisdom to know that this is the right time to take that chance. And yes. he's not only like knows exactly what to do, he goes and he gets a drink and he knows exactly which bus to get on, where he's going to transfer, and he's going to Mexico. Yep. And it ends with, I hope Andy is down there. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. And it's really touching that the hope ends that way. Because during about halfway through, hope was a caged tiger that would right. ruin your life. And now it's this... Hopefully. It's this freedom. It's freedom. It's Mexico. It's, it's the Mexico. chance to. It's the, it's the Pacific. It's the. It's getting. It's going in and having a drink as a free man. It's getting on a bus and leaving. It's just going, and I. Ugh, yeah. Yep. It was um, fantastic. Yes. So. And so you know, I know we'll watch this movie. Of for course. sure, we and, will. And I know that everybody is probably familiar with this movie because it's, I mean, they show it on TV all the time and every time I run across it, I stop and watch it because it's just such a great movie. Um, 
you know, um, Frank Darabont is an amazing director. He's, I, I love his work. And, you know, Frank Darabont paid him a few dollars for the, the rights to this book. Stephen King has got a thing where he doesn't, if, if he feels like you're passionate about your project with, with his work, he doesn't charge a whole lot for the rights to do it. And, and the story is that he never cashed the check that Frank Darabont wrote him for the rights to this. That's- and, you know, he just did such an amazing job of retelling this story so effectively. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful movie. And uh, I think that's the nice thing about this story, though, is it does just translate well into a movie because it's a secondhand story like mm-hmm. that, because it's a story that your friend is telling you. Your friend so we could that, have a narrator. Yeah, your friend that's telling you isn't also going to spend as much time like, ah, and then the gray walls were dripping with a little bit of condensation that had built up over the couple of... And, like, right. he's just going to be like, so we're sitting there overnight, like, having... It's going to be a little bit more straightforward. Right. And I think that that's what's really nice about Red as well, is that he is a very straightforward narrator. Yeah. And, and I mean, and he even says at one point in here that he's not very educated. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a high school diploma. But he's obviously educated enough to tell the story. Right. He's more than educated enough to tell the story. He's more right. he's educated enough to tell the story, use framing devices, illusions, <laughs> right, like right. all of these things and like these little clever one liners. And if we're looking at it, the story in itself proves that when he says he's an uneducated man that can't do things, he's wrong. Right. He's and and you know, this is that whole that uh, you know, that piece of paper doesn't make the man. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so. and I think one thing thing about that too it's so much more interesting is he's from the 20s when he went into prison the first time you know so he's been in there since the 20s so the fact that he was learned how to read all of that before that write and everything and then construct this story afterwards is fantastic yeah so so obviously he was a reader yeah red was Mm -hmm. i feel like that's how he probably was in the library a lot hanging out with andy well and i feel like that he was probably in the library a lot hanging out with brooksy before andy I feel like Aunt, that that Red was maybe not educated in the traditional sense, but certainly not dumb, certainly right. not ignorant, certainly not uneducated. He just didn't have that document yeah. that said he had an education. That was, yep. And I think that that's so important about this story, too, is Steve tells us about the type of people that you'll meet through the world and just because they don't have something that is traditionally considered Proof. Proof doesn't mean that they're not educated or intelligent or, you know, versed in that sort of thing. Exactly. They, you can be a master without having a piece of paper. That's right. And I think that's, um, I think that that's really what's important about this book is the way that it humanizes convicts. Yeah. Because especially like right now, we're still going through a part of the, the a phase in America where prisons just glorified slave labor. Yes, it is. And at least through this, a convict has a chance to... At mm. least through this, the reader gets uh, the story of a positive convict, one that wasn't trying to hurt or harm anyone who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And maybe that person will stop and see a felon and just think for a second and be like, maybe they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, that and, you know... Just because they did one thing wrong that landed them in prison doesn't mean that they are damaged forever. Mm-hmm. People can grow. 
I think mm-hmm. that that's a really important and and like, I think show. that that Tommy as a character is important for that because you know Tommy was trying to better himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he he went to prison. He knew that he was he knew that he couldn't keep up what he was doing. He knew that he had to make a better life because he had a wife and a kid, and he knew he had to get his his act together. So. While he was in prison, he used that time to get an education, to get mm-hmm. a high school diploma, to learn to read. And and to, so I mean, I, I feel like it's important that he also demonstrates that some people actually do get rehabilitated in prison. Right. They're not prisoners for life. But you notice that it's not in like any way of discipline or negative like consequences. It's all because he's able to go to a nice library with a librarian that knows what he's doing and able to be taught. Mm-hmm. It's because he's given that opportunity to given be rehabilitated. He's given the tools right. to be rehabilitated. And, you know, our, I think our prison system is really lacking. Yes. In, in you know, it's funny as we're talking about like the 40s through the 70s prison system, but we're talking and comparing it to the current prison system because nothing's really changed. Right. Except that, you know, prisons have gotten bigger. Yeah. Well, yeah. Significantly bigger. Right. Probably with uh, some unpaid construction, some inside-out program help. <laughs> some inside-out program help. All yeah. right. So I feel like we should rate this real quick, mm-hmm. and then we can uh, finish this boy up. Yes. So uh, let me get my little notebook. I'm really curious. Do you have any, like, things about... I'm really curious. Do you have any, like, things about Stephen King's life during this? That you know? No? No, I couldn't find anything that was really specifically going on in his life during Things I'm like kind of curious about, like if anyone does know. Oh, damn, I don't have a pen. Um, things I'm kind of curious about, if anyone does know, is if Steve does know anyone that has been in prison, if it's something that he's familiar with, if he's been in jail or prison before. Right. That kind of thing. Uh, I'm just curious, like where this this seed of this yeah. idea came and, from. You know, we'll get to um, bizarre of bad dreams when we get to that. It's another short story anthology, and one of the things I really like about that book in particular is that there's a dear constant reader letter after every short story in there, oh. and it he talks about where the story ideas come from you know he answers that question about where do you get your ideas or how do you write he answers it in the dear constant reader letters in that anthology and i kind of wish he did that with every single book but you know that's a lot um and it's there's always a kernel there's always an inspiration um you know and like Paul in Misery at the end, you know, it was seeing some kid with a skunk in New mm. York City that that, right. you know, it got him started. It, it gave him, I'm, I'm sure that that book that he wrote was not about a kid with a skunk in New York City, but right. it got the, the juices flowing. And I, you know, I don't know what the um, catalyst was for this book, but it could have been anything. Right. Um, it really like makes it seem like the idea of an innocent man in prison mm-hmm. like what would he do how would yeah. he like stay sane how could he like well and you know this spitballing here again no no corroborating evidence this was written in the early 80s and you know what was his prison in the early 80s cocaine 
Yeah. Just thinking. I, I mean, no, I don't know. No. I don't know that this is what I, I'm again. This is mm-hmm. completely me just spitballing. But, you know, in 86, 87, when he was writing Misery, he was at the worst point. But had he started before that, this before point? that, at, mm-hmm. when he was writing this, was that something that he recognized? Was the, is the prison in this? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just like anything else. You can always project something onto a story and right. whether it's what the the writer intended or not it's there's so do you think could we be should to it. do you think we should do this as like a whole book and like wait until we've done all four stories to rate it or should we rate each individual novella um i feel like we should rate each individual one okay i like that my, so my notes for that are in the front of the stand mm. that i just handed you <laughs> copy back um so i know the first one is I plot i took it out i don't know i don't know what i did with it i'm sorry yeah so first one is plot and I, I man this is so hard for me because there's part of me that wants to give every book that we read tens across the board <laughs> almost every book that we read tens across the board i think but the concept of this one the plot like it's not that like crazy or special right. or anything it's just like really well written yeah it is really well written so i think that. the plot the plot's only in like a six for me because yeah, i mean like yeah. it's just a prison break like it's, it is it's, it's just, just looking at just the plot there's not that much special about it right it's not like uh something new <laughs> mm-hmm. there's been lots of stories before this of innocent men going to prison and getting out right. or been... so yeah i agree with that i agree that the the just the plot point is probably six maybe seven and then writing but the writing is ten. absolutely a ten. absolutely a ten. Absolutely. this is probably like gonna be, end up being like one of the higher echelons of writing for me throughout the course of this series just because of how emotionally invested i got in 100 pages Right. I mean, again, I'm, this is going to... The character development is... He's so good at it. Mm-hmm. He's so good at it. You develop an attachment to these characters oh, so yeah. quickly. And, like, uh, so the it factor, I think that that's where that character develops. Well, it kind mm-hmm. of falls into writing, too. But I think the buddy factor, the it factor for me is the how friendly and warm Red is. How he feels like my friend. How it feels like a, a, just an older gentleman I met at the bus stop telling me a story. Yes. And it's so well written in that regard that that is what makes it, gives it the it factor for me. Yeah. That's it, what makes it special and different from all of the other versions is that we're just seeing it from the lens of an admiration from a fellow prisoner. Right. As a tall tale, as it, a legend. And that's really a fun lens to look at it through. And it does. It, it really, it does feel like a friend telling you a story or you know and and that's i love that so So, i think it factor for me is giving it an eight because it's not like it's not like misery 10 out of 10 i don't think i give misery 10 i don't remember i think you did give misery a 10 okay i did i thought so too (laughs) and like it doesn't have any like enough wow moments for me it has some really like amazing moments that really got me but there's not any moments where I stop reading the book or I was like, whoa, or anything like that, like I had with Misery. So I think that's got to be my baseline for rating throughout the... And that's the thing, too, is I just can't give everyone, like, tens, like, either. So it's, like, got to be a little bit harsher or we're just going to have no ranking system. (laughs) It's just going to be, okay, I don't even know why I'm going to listen to this part. They're going to give it tens across the board. (laughs) They just like reading. It's a (laughs) ten. They like reading. It's ten. Um, Um, But, yeah, I think I agree with you in that. This... 
Um, and I think that that's going to be something that we're going to find as we read the short stories and novellas that we're probably not going to give those tens for the it factor because there's not time to, to wow you to well I guess that's actually the opposite like I was wowed from 100 pages but it didn't give me the same sense of wow like of awe I guess I should right, say right um, you know they're going to all I mean I don't I think that you're going to find that they're all really solid stories, but yeah. they're not going to give you that pause and put the book down and then have to come back and pick it up later because it just made you have to stop and think about that. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll give this an eight. An eight. So uh, eight, 10, 6, 18, 24 divided by three. I gave it an eight overall. You gave it an eight, eight overall, overall too. yeah. So. so it's got an eight overall. Not bad. Not Good bad. job, Shawshank. All right, everyone, enjoy the rest of your day. Have a lovely time. Thanks for hanging out with us while we discuss the Shawshank Redemption. I hope you enjoyed it. I know that we made some references to Thanksgiving, but due to, you know, life. Um, <laughs> due to 2020, to uh, living in this year. Yeah, so uh, Happy New Year. Um, look forward to all of the new things that are coming in 2021. We're going to start with The Stand on Thursday. Make sure that you're following us on Twitter and that you like us on Facebook because we're going to start posting what we're reading next so that way you can be involved and read along with us as well. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have some new things. Uh, if you follow us on Patreon, we're going to have our reaction video for Misery coming up here in just a week or two. We're going to start watching the CBS miniseries for The Stand as well to see how that compares to the book. So you'll get those reaction videos, but only if you follow us and, and support us on Patreon. So let us know what you want to see. We're thinking about what's coming next. We're going towards the gunslinger, but we want to hear from you. So if there's anything that you particularly want to hear us see us read, let us know. We'll consider it. Maybe. Have a happy new year and hope 2021 is a lot brighter than 2020 has been. A lot brighter. Otto, Kim, that was incredibly interesting. Great job today. If you would like to support First Time Through, you can follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, or send us an email at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. You can also become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash firsttimethrough to get exclusive early access, to get exclusive videos, and to become our exclusive friends. If that's interested to you, I'm interested. First Time Through... New Eyes on Castle Rock is produced by Empty Theater Productions. It's created by Kim Payne and Otto Mullins. Editing by Otto Mullins. Music by Jason Rager. Art by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art.